1 verse 24, it says this. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. This is a mouthful. This is a lot going on right here. But the one mega theme that I really want to draw out of this for us here today is the idea of suffering. Um, not just suffering, but the suffering that's connected to preaching and living the gospel. as proclaiming, as demonstrating the gospel. And, and see, Paul makes a very distinct and real connection. And I've never really understood this because you would think, I mean, if it was up to us and we were going to design how suffering worked instead of God, I would have built like this incentive program in it, you know, that if you preach the gospel, then you won't go through suffering. You know what I'm saying? If you're good at it, you'll never have to suffer. See how that works? Now everyone's going to want to preach the gospel because no one wants to suffer. You don't like afflictions? I don't either. Let's preach the gospel. That's how I would do it. i build like a little reward system in it. But it's backwards. It's like the better you are, the more you are, the more fluent you are, the more afflictions will find you. The more that sufferings will be there. It's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap my mind around why God would design it in such a way. Paul really gives us great insight into how that's put together. Not only that, but how can real joy be connected with suffering? I mean, honestly, come on. I mean, how can you rejoice in the middle of it? How can you really pull that off? I mean, Paul's just saying that, but I mean, is he just supposed to say that? I mean, he's like a pastor, right? What else is a pastor supposed to say? Of course you're rejoicing. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. In Colossians, so far, from verse 1... All the way to where we're at now, Paul has started very wide. You know, the whole theme that we've been talking about is that Jesus is preeminent. He's above all. He's, he's uh, before all. He's more important than all. More pinnacle in belief, right? And so as we, as we look at how he's gone from wide to narrow, he gets very personal this week. He started by saying, Jesus is preeminent and he's huge over creation. Remember we spoke about creation. Then he drew it in a little bit. Pulled the, the tent pegs in. And he says, Jesus is preeminent over the church. Then he got a little bit more specific. And he says, now Jesus is preeminent over you. And then he talks about his own sufferings today. He says, Jesus is preeminent over me. Even my sufferings, even my afflictions, Jesus is bigger. He's more preeminent. He is overall. And so in this little passage, verses 24 through 29, we see that Paul is struggling with Christ, with the, with the energy that was born from Jesus Christ moving through his veins. He still is toiling. It says he's struggling. And what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to present every single person he bumps into as complete in Christ. That's what he's wanting to do. And he does this passionately, he says, by warning them, does it by teaching them. 
It says as he's established as a steward, as a minister by God's own deliberate calling. All of this is what we're drawing out of this. But if you read between the lines, if you're looking, try to imagine Paul's face. Try to imagine what's going on. Look at how he's talking about struggling in this passage. Look at how he's talking about afflictions, how he's connecting himself to it, how he's talking about joy. And you get this vision of him saying that the truth of the gospel is worth buying into. And watch me, I'm going to do it with my life. There's some things that are worth suffering, and I'm going to suffer for the gospel. And really, a life lived for any other reason is a life wasted. This is the mood he has when he's speaking this. You can see it real clearly. So what I wanted to talk about today is suffering. Okay, Now, now not just suffering like uh, as a consequence of bad decisions. right? Some of you find yourself in the valley of affliction, and it's because you made dumb moves. You've made bad decisions, and so now you're eating it. right? Right when ATM cards came out, Right? And you can get cash out of a machine. And that was revolutionary. That was right around the time where I was starting college. And so I was not good at taking money out of the machine and writing it down in my check registry. You know? I would just try to keep the math in my head, which put me in the valley of bad decisions real fast. I was in affliction. And that's before banks took care of it for you and then just charged you. So I was driving around to every various IHOP and Taco Bell in the city, writing out checks to pay a fee because I bounced a check there. And so, I mean, for a whole semester, I was paying for it. I was just heavy under the hand of affliction and suffering. It was no one's fault but my own. I'm not talking about those sufferings. Now, they're real. They're very real afflictions, but I don't want to talk about those. And I don't really even want to focus on the afflictions that come just by virtue of the fact that mankind is broken. When sin entered the world, death followed. We have disease, tsunamis, earthquakes. We have very, very sickness, syndromes. We've got all kinds of different things that are heavy on us. And that's just by virtue of the fact that there is sin and destruction in the world. Let loose. Until God comes back in the end of ends and fixes everything, makes everything that is sad untrue. When that happens, everything will be different, but right now we still see the afflictions and the sufferings that come with that. Don't even want to talk about that today. But that's real. That's a real affliction. But I want to focus on the one form of suffering, which is that that comes from living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. I want to focus on that because Paul does. That's what he's talking about right here. Okay? There's one phrase in order for us to even understand what this means that I do want to unpack a little bit. Um, It's given people fits for a long time. In verse 24, it says this. This is in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That just sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't even really make a lot of sense. At, at, at worst, it seems like Paul's saying the wrong thing. It's making it sound like what Jesus Christ did wasn't done enough. Like the completed thing he did on the cross wasn't really, really complete. And so Paul's having to kind of make up for where Jesus didn't really get the work done. That's where this has been confusing for a, a whole lot of people. Scholars, I mean, there's thousands of different views, it feels like to me, on what that passage means. I do think that there is a good, good way of looking at it, and I, I want to just bring it to you. There is another key passage in the Bible where Paul uses the same language, and I think it was going to help us. It's difficult because of the language Paul uses, right? But what he's really saying, because he's not adding anything to the cross... 
by his own suffering. Well, I mean, well, I just have to say that and make that really clear. He's not adding anything. By Paul's sufferings and his afflictions, and he had a bunch of them, he doesn't atone for his own sins. He doesn't atone for yours either. And you know what? Your afflictions and your sufferings, they're not atoning for your sins either. That's called work salvation. That's religion. So we don't toil and toil and toil and get afflicted and afflicted and afflicted and go through it with a smiley face and Jesus loves us more because of it. Jesus doesn't love you. If you're a daughter or son of the king, you don't get any more favor by your obedience. You don't get any more pleasure in his eyes as a son or a child because of your obedience. So that is not what he's saying right here. Saying that he's filling up what is lacking, because that's it. what we're doing as Christians, what Paul did, is we're extending God's sufferings to others. So I want you to keep that one word in mind, extending. We're taking the sufferings and the afflictions that Christ had on the cross, and we're extending them to a lost world with all the stories they've heard. This is the one story they need to hear the most. Okay, Because you've got to remember, this was a mystery to them back then. It needed extension. It's a mystery today, to be totally honest with you. The gospel story needs to be told today, just like it needed to be told then. He says it, I think he actually uses the word mystery twice. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. And when, when he says mystery, he's not saying like puzzle. Mystery doesn't mean puzzle. You know those puzzles? I was thinking about this on the way up here this morning. They're little ones where it's like a, it's supposed to be a picture of something, but they took one square out and you could slide the other squares around and try to resurrect what is the true image. I stink at those. I could do some really hard puzzles. I can't do those. Even the little ones that come in like cereal boxes, man. I get so frustrated and feel so stupid. I either throw it away or something, but I, I don't think I've ever finished one of those. That is not the mystery of God, okay? Where we're just trying to figure out this puzzle. When it says mystery, it just means something that was hidden for a long time. And now is revealed. Well, why doesn't he just say that, Luke? Why doesn't he just say something that was hidden, like a treasure, and then revealed? Because you remember he's talking to the Gnostics here a lot, right? Week after week, the first few weeks we've been in this book, we're uncovering a vocabulary... It seems a little weird, but we've got to remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to a very mystical people. So he's using words like spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding. Last week he used fullness, right? This week he's using mystery. He did this because God reveals his mysteries in a man. He doesn't reveal his mysteries in an idea. The Gnostics... We're used to having their mysteries revealed and translated back and forth by an idea system. The more ideas you knew, the more you stepped up the ladder, different angels you worship, different information will be unlocked to you. He's saying our mystery is very clearly defined in a man. That's why he's using their language. And we talked about that last week a little bit, so I won't belabor it today. But Paul says in not-so-simple words, he gives us a simple concept, which is, I'm taking the effective, complete work of Jesus Christ to a people who have not heard yet or seen yet the gospel. That's what he's saying in this phrase right here. I'm partnering with Christ, that in his afflictions can be seen in my afflictions as I bring them to you. That's for us. That's for ministers of the gospel. That's for you. That's for me. That we can fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How do we fill up in that? How do we carry it on? By extending it to a people who have not seen it, who have not heard it, or both. Not doing anything weird. We're extending. I tell you what, if you 
Did I give you Philippians 2? I can't remember now if I did. Turn, if you have your Bible, turn in Philippians 2. And I'm going to give you a partner verse. This is a good way to read the Bible, by the way. And this is for free. Anytime you see a phrase in a text and you don't understand it, look to see if it's repeated in other contexts by the same author. And it will help you. You'll go, oh, okay, well, I know what he's talking about here, which helps because I have no idea what he's talking about over there, you know. There was one passage that we did, I think it's either this one right here or last week's, where there were 213 words in one sentence. Of course, the translators went in and put periods and punctuations because we're not Paul and we don't write run-ons, right? But he had 213 words. It's hard to understand him sometimes, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what Peter said? I think it's in First Peter, or it might be in Second. I'm not sure where he says, you know, Paul. Yeah, Paul. It's hard to understand what he's talking about sometimes. Virtually, that's what he's saying. I agree with Peter. It is. But there is another passage where we get an insight into what he's talking about, and it's this one. And by the way, if you don't like your Bible, we have free ones back there. And I'm not saying like you don't like the color or whatever. That's your valley of bad decisions if you pick the Bible with a bad color. But we do have some ESV Bibles back there if you don't like the way yours reads. Those are for free. Um, In Philippians 2, this is Paul talking to the church of Philippi. He's in prison when he writes this. And he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Okay, stop. What is he doing? What's going on here? Epaphroditus was a part of the church of Philippi. Paul needed things. Now, whether it was food or clothes or scrolls or books or money, we don't know what the need was. We don't know what needed to be provided, but something did. And so the church of Philippi took a love offering. Okay, it'd be like us all passing around a big barrel or something and throwing, I don't know, whatever someone needed in Peru and then sending someone to Peru to go take it to this person. That's all that's going on right here, okay? Okay, here he goes, verse 26. Let's keep going. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Now catch this. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There it is. Same phrase. Same phrase. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking in their service? They took a love offering. How did they lack? How did they screw that up? He didn't ask for it. They just did it. So they put together this love offering. They sacrificially do something for Paul. And they ship it up to Rome. And he says, this guy picked up where you guys left off. He completed where you lacked. Complete what was lacking. What's he talking about right there? Think about it. Paul would have loved. I mean, you get this in Paul's heart when you read any of his stuff. He would have loved for the whole church of Philippi to just pack up and come and meet him and bring this personally. He would have loved to do that. He would have loved to have seen that. But they can't do that. We have cars today and we can't do that. Right? That's just impossible. So what do they do? They do the next natural thing. They get a messenger, a partner with them to extend the love. To bring it. Instead. To bring it. And he's basically saying, he filled up where you lacked. You could not bring it. He could. That's all that's going on right here. It's very important for us to see this. 
He completed what they did not in carrying the gift. Talking about this passage and the one we're dealing with in Colossians today, this is what John Piper says. He says, Christ has prepared a love offering for the whole world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full, is lacking in nothing, except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world and the people of your workplace. That's what he says it's lacking, a personal presentation. That's because it's going to happen through you. It's going to happen through me. We are going to pick up and complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is exactly what's going on right here. God's answer to this lack is us. It's His mission and us being on it. That is the plan here. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to propagate salvation. We suffer to proclaim and extend salvation. That's the key to this verse. So, it's extending it to them and making it visible for them. Okay? Now, now that that is out there, and hopefully that makes more sense than it did whenever you first read it, hopefully it's not more complicated and mysterious now, I do want to talk about how he connects his sufferings to Christ's sufferings. I think this is the second part that helps us understand how this works. You see, he goes through a real big... Well, I mean, I'll just read it. It says, right, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm willing, or I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's connecting his sufferings with Christ's afflictions. It's a very real thing. I think that Christ, I think that God means for us to experience, sometimes, on occasion, a lot of the same sufferings that Christ had felt whenever he was on mission. So that when we offer to Christ to somebody and they see that Christ in us, it makes a little bit more sense. And I know, now listen, even in typing this down, there was a little bit inside of me that said, oh, come on. Does that mean we have to suffer all the time? That Listen, there is a little bit of prosperity gospel that is still stuck to me. I mean, there's still a residue of it that says, come on. I mean, do you have to suffer for them to understand Christ's suffering? I mean, does it really have to be linked that closely? No, but are we willing? Sometimes it might not. But are we willing to see suffering happen in our own life that would even make sense to anybody else? You know, the alternative to me, it seems empty and it seems unbelievable that we, you know, we would talk in the city, in the community to a people that are real suffering. There are people that are suffering out there, I'm telling you, bad. Really suffering. And then we talk about a suffering Christ. Well, you're suffering? Let me tell you about Jesus. He suffered. Right? But then we start to try to convince them that if you just had more faith, you just had more of this, you wouldn't be suffering anymore. You would prosper if you just got your faith up. It's counter what we just said. We're talking to a suffering people about a Lord that was suffering, and then we turn around and hypocritically say, if we're not careful, that all you need is to get your faith up. All you need is to read more. All you need is to pray more. And then your problems will go away. You don't like suffering? then you need to get in the church. You don't like suffering? You need to get in a, in a community group. And that's just the best we can do. Well, that's prosperity gospel. That's what it is. And if we're not careful, we can do that. It's real easy to slip into that, and I did it for years. I will tell you, though, the people that I run into legitimately, like on Fridays when I go to the laundromat, there's a, a great woman I met. I talked to her for a long time. She had a great job, lost it, lost her job, then lost her house, then lost her marriage, 
lost this. I mean, she could not get through telling me about her life without telling me the number of things that she has lost. And she can't even get through it without bawling. She's just crying. I don't even know her. She doesn't even know me. And I'm talking to her about her suffering. I'm talking to her about the suffering of Christ at the same time. How out of place would it have seemed for me to have said, you know what, if you just come to church with me, all of your suffering goes away. Don't you want your job back? Don't you want the, don't you want the things that you used to enjoy? Don't you want those back? I can't do that. I can't do that. Do I want her life to grow and, and swell? Do I want her to experience joy? Yes, I do. But I want the gospel to be centered in her life. Not the losing and the gaining of the things that she used to have or really wants. That's not the gospel, right? So, I do believe that the way our king means to offer himself to culture, to the world, as a sufferer, is through us. And I think sometimes that means it, it will be most easily understood to them if we're doing it and we are suffering. Now, our suffering is not getting pelted with stones and being thrown in the clink, right? We don't suffer like that in the States. We have it a little bit differently, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I think His cross becomes a lot more apparent when they see us bearing ours, okay? A lot of times we don't bear our cross. How is it ever going to make sense to them that Christ had a cross to bear? There is a connection between our cross and His, though. There is a very valid connection between our suffering and His suffering. There's a very valid connection between our sacrifice and His sacrifice. And Paul shows us real clearly right here by connecting it to His life. And then he talks about connecting joy to it. And this is all in the same verse. It's amazing. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Rejoice? Why? (laughs) Why? Why would you do that? It says in Hebrews... Um, 12. I didn't give you this one, though, I don't think. Did I? Okay. In Hebrews 12, it says this. I'm just going to read it to you real quickly. Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Right? The joy set before Him. Okay? Despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Now hear this. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Man, I need to hear that. Who, is, who had all the opportunity to grow weak and faint-hearted? It was Jesus Christ. But there was something that separated Him. There was a joy that was set before Him. What was the joy that was set before Him? What was the joy that was set before Christ? It was the idea of a collected and glorified people. It's the idea of doing His Father's will. It was the idea of glorifying His Father through the utmost passionate sacrifice of His own life. That was the joy that was set before Him. So, what should keep you from being weak and faint-hearted? What should encourage you? This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. In those same moments, the same joy, the same joy that was set before Christ can be set before you. It's very important. You see, to Jesus, there was no higher prize than the glory of God. And His grasp was so firm around this hope, this solid hope, that nothing was going to pry His fingers loose. Nothing was going to do that. Nothing on earth could make him lose grasp on this hope and this glory. We see this in James 1, too, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. You see it all the time. You hear this all the time. Pastors preach on this all the time. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Man, that's just tough. How do you do that? Well, 
this word joy, if you look at some of the original language, how the words are put together, this is what scholars call an eschatological view of joy. That's a very long word that just means the end of ends. All right? Eschatological just means an end time view. All right? This joy is one that is fixed on the end. Fixed on that moment where, like it says in Revelation 19, Jesus comes on a big white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's not a baby in a manger anymore. He's a victorious king leading an army. That is the joy that James is talking about right here. Consider it all joy. Look for. He's not saying that things don't hurt. Understand this, and neither is Paul. He's not saying, hey, your rejection, it doesn't hurt. You know, I had these coaches growing up. They would try to convince us as athletes, and we weren't buying it, by the way, that pain is a state of mind. Cold is a state of mind, you know. Cold is a state of mind. You've got a jacket on, you know. Can't be too state of mind. You've got a jacket on. It's a state of mind, son. Your pain, it's a state of mind. James isn't doing that. He's not saying that the rejection you feel, the pain you feel, that it's imaginary or it doesn't matter. He's not saying any of that. He's saying keep an eye on the end. He's saying keep it all in perspective. Think about Jesus on the white horse. Think about all of creation. I mean, if you think about it, your life is a wisp. It's gone like that. You're here and you're gone. It's less than a vapor. I mean, perspective-wise, we're just not even this big. We're here and we're gone. Boom, just like that. There will be a time where we see everything and we see Christ as He sees us and everything is complete. The pain is gone and there's no more crying. That is so close. It feels like it's forever away though, doesn't it? That's what James and Paul and the author of Hebrews are fighting against. is just that tendency for us to slip into this idea of thinking that everything is a here and now and our pain is all we have. It says there's a deeper hope. Keep an eye on Him. So, Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying that the biggest treasure we have, the biggest riches we could have, this is what he says in Colossians 1, is Christ in us in the hope of glory. And we talked about this hope last time. And this hope, whenever Paul talks about hope and the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about like the conventional way that we do it, where we kind of cross our fingers and hope for that job. Or hope for that whatever. You know, we hope for a lot of things. I just hope, Jesus, I just hope. Well, that's not what he's talking about. That's wishing, by the way. It's not really hoping. You just wish you'd get those things. Hope is something different. Hope is a firm, fixed faith that is pointed at something. When we have faith, faith is believing that God is very much doing what he says he's going to do. Faith is saying that God is true and he does what he says he's going to do, right? That's faith. But now faith that is fixed at a target, being the end of all ends, that's different. That's the hope. See, hope and faith have a lot to do with each other, and sometimes we don't really know how to distinguish them when we read it in the Bible. But the difference between hope and faith is very very negligible. In fact, I mean, it's very difficult to, to kind of separate one from the other. Hope is saying, I have a faith that God will do what He said He was going to do. That Jesus Christ will be where He said He was going to be at the, at the time that He said He was going to be there. And Revelation, the, the end, the, when everything is over, that is hope. Okay? And this hope, what is it supposed to do in us? It's supposed to generate a little bit of peace, isn't it? It's supposed to generate some happiness, some joy about us. It's supposed to generate something different than it does. And whenever you have that firm hope, joy, and that peace working in you, afflictions have a real difficult time tackling you. Sufferings have a hard time really making you skip or miss a step. 
And then trials, just like Paul says, become something that you can count all joy because they give you an opportunity, an opportunity, an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. Something is broken. The cross, the message of the cross is that God fixed something. Is something depressing? The message of the cross is that God enlightens the heart and, and brings peace to the heart. Is something cracked? Well, the gospel message is that God is a remedy. I mean, anything that can happen to you that's a trial can be a beautiful platform for the gospel. That is what we see going on here. Later on, this is what John Piper says. He says, The Calvary road is not a joyless road. It is a painful one. But it is a profoundly happy one. The happiest people in the world are those who know the mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory, satisfying their deep longings and freeing them to extend the sufferings of Christ through their own to the world. But I mean, our sufferings, our afflictions in America, like we said, what do they look like? I mean, it's not prison. It's not getting beat up. Anyone ever been beat up by preaching the gospel before? I mean, I had a dude take a swing at me once, but he didn't connect, so I'm not counting that, you know? I mean, I've had people spit at me or yell at me, throw food on me. I don't I mean, that's, at the time, it's not affliction whenever you could walk away and go, oh man, and brag on it a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't really afflicted because I knew I was going to get to talk about it later on and it would make me look good, you know? That's not affliction, but I haven't had to go to jail for the gospel or anything like that. What is it for us? I think there's two main things that we feel like we're going to lose when we're on God's mission. Now, when I say on God's mission, I mean either demonstrating the gospel with our lives or I mean proclaiming it with our mouth. There's two main venues that really jump on us that we feel like we're going to lose something. One is that we're going to lose our comfort. Our feeling of comfort. And that provokes something called indifference. It gives us indifferent hearts. Right, And the difference is just not really caring about those around us that are slowly dying inside. It's not really caring. Because if we really cared and we really wanted to do something, it would cost us something. What would it cost us? Comfort. Thus, the more we involve ourselves in the grit of the world, the more it's going to cost you in comfort. It will. And I never, I tell you what, whenever I, some things I have a great endurance for, but when I get sick or when I get tired, I don't want to leak any more comfort. I am the biggest baby. Whenever I get sick or tired, I just whine, I whine, I whine. I need to be doted on. My bride, she puts up with it to a certain extent, and then she calls greatness out of me and says, buck up or man up or something like that. But I mean, I really I really want to whine. I don't want to invest in you when I'm sick. I'll just be honest. I don't want to talk to you on the phone. I don't even want to be around you. I mean, I love you now because I don't feel good. or I feel, I feel fine, but I'm saying whenever I'm really, really in a bad place, I don't want to invest in anybody. I don't want to talk to my neighbors. I don't want to witness to the dude at Weigel's or I don't I just don't want to be that guy what about when you're depressed or you're stressed out have you noticed how easy it is to really get inflective whenever you're depressed or stressed out or full of anxiety it's the hardest thing in the world to be on God's mission isn't it because you're thinking I got to get my own junk in order I've got myself to think about I've got myself to get tooled and ready I'm not pouring into anybody else right now it's an indifference in us. It's an affliction. It's a suffering. It's, it's real. We save our investment. We don't place it in others. I tell you what, the point of change here, it's repenting. It's really repenting for just a lack of love, a lack of care. 
lack of compassion, I have to do it a lot. I need to ask God all the time to give me a larger heart. A larger heart that's not so fascinated with my own comfort level. Not so intoxicated with myself and my needs and me and me and me. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not. But I bet you are. Right? I think another thing that we feel like we're going to lose sometimes is a reputation. This is what the Bible calls the fear of man. This is what we call the fear of man. We lose our image, our reputation, how people look at us. That's where we place a bigger weight on the culture's perception of us than the culture's perception of Christ. That is the very definition of the fear of man. Because we proclaim a confrontational message, don't we? We do. And you could be the sweetest little person in the world with the sweetest little voice, you know? And you could, you could just put flowers in between all the words. But you start pushing on sin. You start taking idols and throwing them to the ground. And you start demanding, not you, your message, demanding a response. People are going to fritz out on you. They're going to lose it on you. And you're like, wow. And you'll take it personal, of course, you know, because we do. It's a confrontational message. And we don't want our image to get tarnished. We forget that we're dead and we're buried and raised in newness of life, but we forget that our image is lost in Jesus Christ, and so we still want those old things back, right? Old identity, old image, old desires, old goals, old fears. This is probably the number one reason that people are not on mission right here. It's really the fear of man. I think we all could find a place to really extend ourselves beyond our pain and comfort or discomfort, but I think the fear of man is what really nails people. I know this is what really nails me. This is the biggest form of suffering that we will go through when we proclaim the gospel. The suffering of our image. Which most of the time it's not even true. Most of the time we don't even get it suffered. But that's what we think. And the relatively few people, this is what I've noticed over 15 years of doing it. The relatively few people that actually can get their arms around the fear of man and not really struggle with it so much. They don't really care about what people think about them. Y'all know somebody like that? doesn't really care about what people think about them they start preaching the gospel they start demonstrating with their life and what do we do we call them evangelists they have the gift of evangelism oh you're this uber evangelist because you don't care no they're a christian that's the way we're supposed to be it's just that our our standard has fallen so low that we want to give everyone a business car and put them on the payroll because they tell people about jesus well my gosh they're a christian that's what we're all supposed to do Fear of man will really, really cause a problem in our lives when it comes to suffering. And so what is the point of change here? It's also repentance. But what are we repenting for? The place where we place our worth and our value, which is our reputation and our image. We want people to like us. I do. I want everybody to like me. I don't want anyone to get upset. I don't like that. I hate awkward pauses. I don't like the feeling of air leaving the room. I always want to jump in whenever there's an awkward silence. Are you like me? I just want to come in. I don't like uncomfortable things. I I want everybody to love me, you know? So for me, personally, suffering for the gospel, it's probably not going to be going to jail. It's probably going to be having some tarnish on my reputation. Gospel grip people. I wrote this down because I thought it was pretty smart. I have to read it or I'm going to mess it up and it's mine. Gospel grip people love giving up their place for others because their value is in Christ and not in their place. We like to give up our place if we're gospel grip because our value isn't in anything other than Christ. It's not in our place. And I will tell you, these, 
These things, this life of suffering, your identity coming down, your comfort coming down, to be on mission, it's not an accidental lifestyle. It's a purposeful one. You don't accidentally live a life of suffering for the gospel. That's not how it happened. For Jesus, he wasn't accidentally crucified. He stepped into the cross. He tackled that cross. There was intentionality. He did it of his own volition of choice. Paul did the same thing. Paul did the same thing. This is what I love. This, this, whenever I read this passage of all the passages describing Paul's life, this one, this one nails me right between the eyes. I didn't even have to look it up when I put it on here. This is in Acts 14 and verse 19. I just have to read this. If you don't, pay attention to the city names in this, okay? It says this, But Jews, you got it up there? Great. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Okay, stop. Okay, this is, this is what's going on here. They're picking up rocks and throwing them at him, aiming for his head until he dies. That is what it means. Has anyone ever thrown a rock at you, like as a kid, and it hits you in the leg, and you're like, ah, 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 you know, you make the biggest dramatic theatrical deal about it, oh, you know, imagine that happening, but they're trying to kill you, and they're not going to slow down because it hurt over and over, and you know they're looking for the biggest rocks they can get their hands on, and they're lunking them at you until he looked like he was dead. I don't even know what that was. I doubt they took a pulse. They probably just assessed it and thought, yeah, that last one got him. He's done. And they dragged him out of the city. Okay, that's what happened. Now pick it up in verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So he just went on to another city. When they had preached the gospel to that city, so he just just kept preaching. He didn't take a sick day or two. He just kept preaching. Did you catch that? He had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. He went back to the same people that just stoned him. He went right back. Okay, not me. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking in my mind, there's plenty of cities out here. (laughs) I could walk this distance in any direction. I can get to a new people. They probably won't stone me again. That's what I'm thinking. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and then catch this, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay, he gets to preach that message. He gets to preach the message on tribulations. He's probably still got whelps on him. Probably still got a cut up face, a limp. He gets to preach on tribulations. Now, don't you think there was some value to that message? Don't you think the people sitting there listening to him Got it? I mean, it's easy to pull up in a BMW and have nice clothes on and try to preach to you guys about tribulations and sufferings and afflictions. Wouldn't that be... I mean, But I mean, to come in limping, just a breath from death a week ago or something like that and talk to you about it, it's got some premium to it now, doesn't it? It's got some kick in it. This is how Paul preached. You know, it's a lifestyle. This is a choice we make. When we give and we're on mission, when we do these things in suffering, it's a choice. We act like to suffer for the gospel is like a big bully picking a fight with us and just throwing punches. And we just hope and pray he doesn't really hit us. But that's not it. No one picked a fight with us. We step into it. A Christian lifestyle steps into a conflict that's already going. 
That's the correct biblical view of it anyway. So, how can joy do how, how can joy be a part of this for Paul? It's because he was releasing his grip on the world. And he was increasing his grip on the gospel. Simultaneously, he's doing that. It's changing him. He's able to take joy in things that the average person is just not going to take a lot of joy in. Right? You'd hear him say something like, If something is asking me to loosen my grip on Christ, I won't do it. I won't do it. I think it shows value. Something really broke me up. Now, I've listened. There's, there is a, a message. You can get it on iTunes. I, wouldn't, I don't even know what the name of it is, though. You'd have to look for it. Matt Chandler is um, a pastor in Texas with a sister church with this church. I mean, it's one of the Acts 29 churches. And he's preaching to a bunch of pastors at a conference about a sickness that he got that, was a, that, that could have taken his life, in his brain of all places, you know. And he, and he just became instantly this spokesman for, for suffering. And he was like, everywhere I go, people want me to preach on suffering. They won't let me preach on anything else because he's lost his hair, he's in chemo, all this kinds of treatment. It's, it's just horrible what was happening to him. And he said people would try to help him. And they just didn't know any better. They would want to say, oh, we're so sad that this is happening to you. And they would try to help and encourage. And he's like, they, sometimes they say the wrong things, but they don't mean to. I mean, they just they, they want to love me and they just don't know exactly how to do it. He said this, and when he said this, I just started bawling. I, and I know it sounds weird, and I'm sorry. But he said, but I understand that this moment for me is the most valuable gospel sermon I can ever preach. How I suffer right now. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's right. This is it. The world is watching. He's preaching a Christ who has suffered. He himself is suffering. He's picking up where Christ's afflictions are lacking to the church. He's doing it. Man, Mark 8, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And here we see that the path to life is denying self. We see it real clearly. You cannot deny yourself if there's no suffering involved. There will be. I'm not saying go out and look for it. I'm saying it's going to find you. You don't have to go out and search for suffering. Just wait until you're about to pull the trigger and demonstrate it or proclaim it to someone. It's going to find you. Because the first thing you're going to think about is your image. The first thing you're going to think about is your comfort. You can't deny yourself without that being in tandem with it. So, I believe that this is the way that Christ means for us to proclaim His sufferings to the world. It's built on a bedrock of maybe even our own sufferings that they can see. I'm going to read this to you. It's, I know I say this every time I'm about to read something, that it's, in public speaking, it's a big no-no to read to people. People don't like to be read to. There, I said it. Um, just to make you aware that I know you're not supposed to read people. But I always say that right before I read to people. But this is really worth it. So, this is a story that is told by Michael Card, who's a musician. I don't listen to him, so I couldn't tell you what kind of music. Um, but he tells a story about a Maasai warrior named Joseph. Now, there are pastors who have told this story, so if you've heard it, you know where this is going. But it talks about this South, I think it's in South Africa, this warrior who one day, Joseph, who was walking along a hot, dirty African road, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power 
of the Spirit began transforming his life. And he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. It says, Joseph began going from door to door telling everyone he met about the cross and the suffering of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way that his face had lit up. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. I'm pretty sure that that was not a great day for Joseph. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole. And there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. And he wondered. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all of his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. So after rehearsing the message over and over, as he had first heard it, he decided to go back and share the faith once more to the same people. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. And once more they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. Now to survive the first beating was remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him had begun to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed, and the ones who had severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to know Christ. The entire village had come to know Christ. This is what it means to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is what it means to extend the afflictions of Jesus Christ to a world who won't understand it, but they will see it in your affliction. They will see your image taking a hit. They will see your comfort taking a hit. They'll see your financial sacrifice taking a hit. They'll see all of these things taking a hit, and it will make sense to them. It will make sense to them. So I'm finishing with this. You know, it it might seem like I'm trying to guilt people. I mean, that's... How it can be done. It might seem like I'm trying to guilt people into being more on God's mission, to, to preaching more, to demonstrating more of the gospel. What I'm after is not guilting anyone into anything. What I'm after is for us to repent. I need to repent. I've been repenting all week as I stare at this, as I'm enslaved to my image, an intoxication of my own reputation staying at a height as I'm fascinated with my own comfort being exactly where it is, where I want it, where I want it to stay, we have to repent for those things. So I'm not going for guilt. I'm going for repentance, at least in me. 
Maybe you can join me in that. Maybe some of you have struggled with that. Maybe some of you have never really understood the afflictions of Christ because you've been surrounded by a church that seems like it's in comfort. And, and, and it doesn't make much sense to you, maybe. But what happened on that cross was great in its suffering. It was great in what he said. You know, it wasn't just the pain. I mean, that's usually what the church cues in on whenever it's trying to get people saved. At a crusade or a church camp or something like that, they always cue in on the pain. You know, oh, that nail must have hurt. Oh, he bled a whole bunch. Oh, he's screaming. and he's stir-. They always cue in on that and the agony of it. But don't forget, don't forget that there was a moment where he was crying out for his own father to acknowledge him. Don't forget the fact that he didn't even see half of his own church down there watching because they'd left out of fear. Don't forget that he had tasted abandonment on a level that we couldn't understand. Don't forget that he had stepped out of the glory and the stature of the Godhead to be here and he was filling up God's wrath right there on the cross before our eyes. Don't forget that there was pain on a spiritual matter. There was pain on an emotional level. There was, there was pain all over, not just the agony of what we see with nails and spikes and blood and things like that. Okay? He understands suffering. It's difficult for us as a church to extend that, fill up where Christ is lacking, unless we understand that it will find us as well. It will come looking for you when you're in your workplace. It will come looking for you when you're in the classroom. It will come looking for you when you're with your neighbors and you're wanting to talk to them about this and you just know that if you do, they will look at you differently. You know that if you do, they're going to start jabbering on and you want to go inside and watch Netflix in 10 minutes, but what you know is that if you start, they're going to be out there for two hours. (laughs) Does that make sense? I don't like inconvenience and I don't like my image being tarnished. But that is the suffering that we go through here in the States, right? So, anyway, I don't have a real gracious ending with this. It's not, that's, that's about it. It's more like a truck screeching to a halt. I'm sorry for that. Um, but let me pray for you guys. And then, just as Wes had said when we, 